I don't know if I can say it or not. Wait, wait a minute here. Take three. Can I say smoking weed yeah. and trading weed yeah. and cuss? Yeah. Oh, okay. This is true. Okay, good. Yeah. Okay. Ask me the question again. Okay. So <laughs> what's your background in snowboarding? Should I say smoking weed? Why not? I will say coloring. No, let's say smoking weed. <laughs> we're we're going to go full on. Well, we're going full on? Yep. Uh-oh. F-bombs and all? Everything. Oh, man. Okay. Ask me the question again. Welcome to this week's episode. In this one, I talk to my uncle Jay Liska and Richie Fowler about King of the Hill. Jay and Richie are both former pro snowboarders, and King of the Hill was a legendary snowboard competition held in Thompson Pass back in the 1990s. Three days and three disciplines. There was Extreme Day, where riders competed for the most challenging but stylish line down a mountain. There was Downhill Day, where a race course was set up and riders competed for the fastest time. And then there was Freestyle Day, where competitors battled for who could land the best tricks. There were helicopters and airplanes landing and taking off, flying competitors to their mark, and other riders to revisit old lines and to pioneer new ones. There was a pervasive feeling of wonder and madness. Every day, people pushed the limits of snowboarding and the durability of the human body. The entire event, on-hill and off-hill, was characterized by an anything-goes outlaw attitude. Every day was a party, and every night that party intensified. Drugs and alcohol were everywhere, and it wasn't unusual for guns to be added to the mix. He got her! Then blow up. Here's my Uncle Jay in a 2015 interview with me, talking about the time he and Richie caused an avalanche during the World Extreme Championships, the free ride competition in Thompson Pass that came before King of the Hill. I think that this story foreshadows the element that King of the Hill would eventually bring to Thompson Pass and the town of Valdez. It started out as a guy named Mike Kozad was doing the World Extreme Contest, and uh, he did a few of them in a row, and then he kind of, I think, got tired and maybe burned a few bridges and moved on a little bit. But one of the, king, one of the uh, first World Extremes, ooh, it was the second one, I think. We were hanging down the road with this other helicopter outfit, and the the event was being run by another, the Santa Lodge and another helicopter outfit. Mm-hmm. Well, we'd heard where the event was going to be held that day. It was going to be held on Diamond, which is right behind the Santa Lodge, and you can snowboard off Diamond and go right to the Santa. Mm-hmm. And so we got up extra early, choppered into the event site, landed. And, you know, there's a huge hanging gl- uh, cornice on the top of Diamond. So he, we kind of skirted around the back, and there's a little notch you can drop. And we dropped in. It was sheer boiler all the way down. And it's like Diamond's a couple thousand feet of pretty serious junk, and it was super boilerplate. Uh-huh. We're like, oh, we, we snowboarded down that, me and Richie. 
and we're coming out and here here comes their chopper in chopper 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 from the Sena and it's the judges and the safety crew <laughs> <laughs> they chopped the ju the judges over on this little mound i think it's called the uh, stairway or something for their judging stand and then they took the safety guys and landed on top uh-huh and the safety guys get out and they see our tracks we were just there they seen us coming out mm -hmm. and the safety guys because uh, we went around that hanging glacier I can't remember the name of the safety guy, but, uh, and if this would have happened during the day, it probably would have killed like a hundred people. Mm -hmm. He was walking around the back of that glacier where we kind of went around or the, the cornice where we went around it and dropped in a notch and it broke off. The cornice broke off. The and, entire cornice? Yeah. It was huge. As big as this room, if not bigger. It was humongous. Do you have a maybe feet or like a, a size just off the top of your head? It had to be at least 100 feet wide and probably 30 feet deep. Jeez. Like, you know, a couple of... It was huge. I have a magazine around here with a picture of the, of the, uh, the debris because the judges were over here. Mm -hmm. They seen it come down. And the air displacement from that cornice breaking off, the vacuum sucked this guy off the top of the mountain and he followed it all the way down and broke a hip and all this crazy stuff and they canceled the contest that day but Holy uh shit. that was one from uh, the uh world extreme this podcast is made possible through the generous support of the crude magazine patreon subscribers if you already subscribed to the crude magazine patreon thank you for those listeners who aren't please consider subscribing at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed to the company man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Okay, back to King of the Hill. Although my dad, Scott Liska, and my Uncle Jay were key figures at the event, I wasn't old enough to experience it firsthand. Instead, the stories and the infamy that surround it have followed me around since I was a kid. And what I've found is that the story of King of the Hill is not just the story of the Alaska snowboard scene, but the story of a brave and reckless group of pioneers. Valdez in the 90s represented an era of unmitigated freedom, and that group of pioneers took full advantage of it. So here's the first part of my exploration of King of the Hill. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work! In this first conversation, my uncle, Jay Liska, talks about King of the Hill from the perspective of a competitor, how he measured up to other riders at that time, and how nothing prepared even the most seasoned competitor for Valdez. 
my name is Jay Liska, and uh, my association with the King of the Hill was mm, kind of not so much on the founding, was kind of in on the idea to begin with, but uh, more or less a competitor. The first few years, I didn't, I didn't realize it went on for so long. How long did it go on for? I mean, I thought I seen Travis Rice won it in 2010. I think that that was a different iteration of it. That was at tailgate. So that was kind of this like resurgence of King of the Hill. Right. But it wasn't like a full King of the Hill event. Yeah, that's you're probably right. So what is King of the Hill as far as you remember it? Well, you know, the first few years in Valdez was uh, Mike Kozad only to Sena Lodge, and he started the world extreme snowboarding and skiing and stuff. Um, basically, I mean, everybody wants to make money, and there's really no professional snowboarders and skiers. They're all professional advertisers, so everybody wants to make money. I think he started the world extreme to make money, and then... Uh, he went on his merry way. Maybe he pissed a few, a few too many people off. And then <laughs> uh, after that, Nick and uh, Scott and Liska, my brother, and a few other people come up with the idea, well, let's have our own contest. And that was the spawn of the King of the Hill. And I think the first one was 93, 1993. And Nick is Nick Parada, right? Yeah, Nick Parada. And so you said that it originally started out as the World Extreme Snowboarding Championships, right? Before it was King of the Hill. Yeah. The, I mean, the first couple of years we were starting to go to Valdez, it was the World Extreme Snowboarding uh, for two years. And then the organizer of that had a little bit of a falling out. And uh, then it went to the King of the Hill. So, yes. Do you remember that first year at King of the Hill? Yeah, I mean, I think I got I got third. I don't know. I got, I tied with Steve Clawson and Sean Palmer beat me by one point. So, I mean, it was the first day was uh, basically a race, downhill race from a few gates, but um, from point A to point B, see who could go the fastest. And then the second day would be a freestyle, you know, a mountain run in Valdez, but not so steep, more kickers and, you know, half pipe fun obstacles, you know, to butter your muffin and have a good time on. And then <laughs> the third day would be an extreme day where they'd put you on something steep and, it was, you know, a little more dangerous. So I don't remember... Um, any super particular things I do remember doing it for I think the first two years I did it uh but I never won it I came close a couple times but you know don't always win everything how do you think that King of the Hill was different from other snowboard events at that time well I mean snowboarding was uh just exploding at that time in the early you know, 90s, it was just being recognized at ski areas and everybody was doing it. 
and there was a lot of hype around it. And I, I'm not sure even the X Games was going yet or not, but um, it was it was uh, a lot of free ride snowboard snowboarding and uh, probably a lot of partying and uh, <laughs> just having a really good time. I mean, it was more. Uh, it was at the end in April also in Valdez, and so you had, you know, 16 hours of daylight. You could snowboard until 9 o'clock at night. So it was, it was just a good time partying in, on Thompson's Pass in Valdez. I mean, it was it was more of a festival. What do you mean it was more of a festival? Well, I mean, at that time they were... They were running, uh, they had airplanes and helicopters going. So you could get in a beaver and fly up to a run, eight of your bros, get out, take a run. I think it was like 30 bucks a run. Come back down to the road. They had a van and pick you up. Go back to the helipad, you know, drink some beer, hit whatever you wanted to hit. And, and I mean, the contest was going on at the same time. Everybody in the area was all kind of doing the same thing. We were all just ripping runs and riding choppers and uh, airplanes. I mean, yeah, there's a contest going on. Like maybe uh, you had two runs in a day, and maybe that took maybe that took four to six hours of your day, but you still had four to six hours to do whatever the hell else you wanted to do, and mm-hmm. you know, ride pow. Is there anything that you might have underestimated that first year at King of the Hill? Mm, I never really, in uh, these extreme events and um, King of the Hill, you know, we we didn't really train. It was it was more you either had what it took or you didn't. So mm-hmm. underestimating anything. I never really estimated anything going in, so I didn't have anything to underestimate. I, um, <laughs> you, you just showed up. You showed up, and uh, you know whatever looked fun to you. Other than the racing, you know the racing was um, maybe I thought I'd do pretty good in it, and I never did do that well in it. But uh, maybe the racing aspect, I I thought I'd do better in. But the rest of it is just you look at the mountain and. You know, you pick your line, and it was. You was you wanted to get a good score, but you also was like, "Man, I'm taking this run. I'm gonna have a good time." And you went mm-hmm. where the you know fresh tracks or different stuff, and did what you might just normally do on a any old heli run. You know, and just rip some pow. Yeah. So you you said that you thought you would be better in the racing events. What do you mean by that? Well, I was I was fairly good back in the day. Every, you did everything. We we all raced, we uh, freestyled. I mean, I had hard boots, ASIM board, all that crap, and and I would win like all the races around here. Like not all of them, but I mean, a lot of them around Anchorage. Around Anchorage, yeah, and in Alaska, and I mean, I went to the amateur nationals and. I was on the amateur national team. I mean, I think I got like, I don't know, in a GS race at the amateur nationals, I think I got like, uh, 
mm, I don't know. I think I was number three in the on the amateurs, and then I went and did some professional crap against everybody, all the pros from Dover and stuff. And I mean, I just kept missing uh, the top. I think thirty-two cut. So when you think you're top thirty-two in the in the world and you're not winning the king of the hill downhill. You're you're like, well, what happened there? But it's a little different than an actual race event. I mean, as far as generally racing's on groomed course, and this is just wide open, put a gate here, put a gate there, and they, you know, send you off cornices and stuff like that. Did you see that a lot where people or where riders who would have otherwise done super well at – events um down in the states at a say a ski resort came to thompson pass and it was just all of a sudden like kind of this great equalizer yeah i mean when i first started going to valdez in the first contest i i had no expectations i mean everybody's coming you know farmer palmer parada everybody you know and uh and I did pretty good. I think I got second a couple times and third and, and uh, was winning a couple times until until I fell in a crevasse and things like that. So I I looked at it as just another day in the mountains where a lot of people did show up in Valdez and go, whoa, this is, you know, they were freaked out and uh, brought maybe the wrong equipment and, and had never seen a mountain mountains like that so yeah there was some of that going on i suppose but most of the guys in that contest though and king of the hill and stuff they were they were pretty well seasoned um by that time around in the king of the hill there was a group maybe uh competitors that kind of tried to excel in that one discipline area of mm -hmm. you know free ride extremes stuff like that like they had their specialty. Yeah, they kind of they like doing that. They, it was kind of a, well, if you're if you're a professional advertising snowboarder and and ultimately all you want to do is ride powder. You don't want to ride boiler all the time and race. You want to all you want to do is go ride, you know, pow and choppers. And so yeah, it'd be cool to be uh, getting paid to do that. So. That's what they tried to do. Earlier, you you said you fell into a crevasse. Yeah. What happened there? Oh, that was in the world extreme snowboarding in the very first year. Uh, I was, it was, I think it was my last run, three-day event, all extreme. And uh, I was in first place. I was beating everybody. And... Uh, I'm sitting at the top, you know, the landing zone. I had scoped out my line from down below. And, you know, the safety guys up there, well, they'll ask you, well, where are you going? And I'm like, well, I'm going to hit this kicker here, and I'm going to go across that hanging glacier, and then I'm going to drop in and over there. And and the safety goes, oh, you'll never make it. That's too flat and all this. And I'm like, what? No, I got this. So I maybe when I went across this kind of flat hanging glacier, I maybe went like way too fast. I was like hauling ass and there was some like wind lippy chundery shit. 
and I kind of bowwinkled on this uh, windlip stuff, and I kind of got a little disorientated, and, and I after that I made a wrong turn, and I rode out into this, or I more rode out onto a single finger in the face of a hanging glacier, and it just there was no place to go because it just turned into a huge crevasse, and I had to climb back out of there, and and then I got second. I think Tex Tex won the contest. But if I hadn't fallen in the glacier, I probably would have won. Do you think that that happened a lot where riders took really risky lines? Mm, well, in in those contests, like, uh, you know, judged contests, I think you get a better score when it looks like when the judge is like, oh man, he's having a good time. That looks fun. That, you know, that's, that's what I want to do. So when you throw yourself in like a super gnarly line and you're just kind of gripped, but not flowing the line, mm -hmm. I, I don't think you get that good a score. So uh, people would do that, but you got, you had to make it flow too. You got to have that, that flow factor. Or you ain't getting a good score. Just like it is now. Yeah. So kind of the the mark of a good backcountry rider is usually someone who's very aware of their surroundings and generally a really well-rounded rider. Who do you think that person usually was at King of the Hill? Well, like when I was doing it, the person who won, I, I think he won it twice, was Matt Goodwill and... uh he was really consistent, you know. I think he could have three really good, consistent runs, like not, you know, first, second place runs, and that would be every day after a day where uh, me or other people we'd have, you know, we'd have great runs and good runs, but then we'd have one that would just kind of knock you off, knock your score down enough where he was so consistent, so. It's Matt. I mean, he won it. He won. I can't even remember. He won quite a few, maybe four or five different times. So, um, then Steve Clausen from Mammoth. I mean, he was he was really consistent too, and super focused, and maybe a little more disciplined than the rest of us. And uh, so those two guys were pretty tough cookies. What do you mean more disciplined than the rest of you? Well, I mean, I I had like beer sponsors and stuff when I was snowboarding. I was getting pallets and kegs and all this stuff. So, I mean. You were drinking them. We were drinking and I was bribing <laughs> the judges and stuff. I'd give, you know, I'd, I'd bring a case over to the judging stand before the event and stuff like that. So, I mean, I don't think Steve was quite on the same level as some of the rest of us. So what do you think of that? You said that you would give, uh, or that you would bribe the judges. I mean, did that, did that make you think any differently about maybe your winnings or the place that you got, or was it just, you didn't even think about it. You were just, you know, living in the moment and partying and at King of the Hill. Yeah. Well, I, you know, you wouldn't expect, uh, 
I mean, I wouldn't call it really bribing. You didn't tell them, hey, this, that, or the other. But, uh, I mean, they were your friends. It was yeah. like, I mean, the judges on some of the, it was like Craig Kelly and Dan Donnelly and um, some of the other, I mean, what what's that other cat's name? Uh, shoot, I can't, not, Tom Burt. I mean, it was those dudes and they wanted a beer. So I brought them some beer. That was about it. <laughs> so earlier <laughs> you said that snowboarding is a form of advertising. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, manufa brand, manufacturer companies, they don't really, they don't pay you to snowboard. They pay you to advertise their products. So there really isn't any paid professional snowboarders. You're a professional advertiser. So... If you can advertise the product and and get paid, you're a paid professional advertiser. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I was snowboarding, you you got a, a picture in a magazine. It was worth a thousand bucks if they could read the logo. If if they couldn't read the logo, then you'd only get a couple hundred bucks and stuff like that. So, I mean, these contests like the World Extreme and King of the Hill. And then King of the Hill kind of rolling in the tailgate, whatever it was. I mean, it's really, at the end of the day, um, a marketing campaign or a way for somebody to try and make some money or ride for free. Do you think that that ever affected the snowboarding? Yeah. Um, I mean, Richie got hurt, like, in, the I think, the second. We were, we were just free riding out. Be right before the contest in Valdez and Richie hurt his ankle. Like, you know, it was all swelled up and he tried to get the his money. It was a thousand dollars to enter the contest, uh, uh, the world extreme. And, uh, he wanted his money back and Kosat wouldn't give him his money back. So Richie was pretty pissed. I don't know whatever he ended up. Uh, I think he ended up, he couldn't get his money back. So he just went up and, he it was his turn to take a run. He just take kind of a power on. He he couldn't really compete. He wasn't like on crutches, but he couldn't like drop a bunch of airs and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, money is the root of all evil. So I'm sure it affected a few things. Well, and a thousand dollars back then, a thousand dollars now is a lot. Yeah, right. Well, that included your meals and room. And uh, the heli lifts, uh, the contest lifts. So it was three days, room and board, and a contest for a thousand bucks. So I would assume that if you got hurt at King of the Hill and you had already paid that amount, then that amount is theirs and you're just going to party for the rest of the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, I broke my kneecap, I think, in the, uh, was it the King of the Hill? It was in something. And, uh, yeah, I think I hung out for one day, and then I flew back to Anchorage. But uh, I did make it to the bar that night with a broken kneecap. What was that night like? Um, we were at the Totem, just kind of, uh, I went in there on crutches, had some coldies, couldn't really... Maybe, dude, I think I might have had some morphine too. So I was feeling pretty good, probably. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I did have, they were giving me some shots of morphine and um, it broke my kneecap in half. So th 
the top part of my kneecap was about halfway up my thigh because all the tendons hook on the top and bottom of your kneecap. And when I crashed, it uh, messed it up. But yeah, yeah, had a couple coldies, felt pretty good. Went back to Anchorage and got it pinned back together. So I asked the crude Instagram if they had any questions for you about King of the Hill. And I got a couple responses. Cool. So Ted Purdy asks, did Sean Farmer throw down harder during the day or at night? Hmm. I mean, Sean, it was pretty much all day long with Sean because he would, uh, he would lose his goggles and his hat every day. You know, you might, you'd show up and you were sponsored. You had some goggles and some hats and stuff, but Sean was always like, "Ah, let me borrow some goggles. I lost mine yesterday. So, (laughs) and, uh, you'd give him some goggles and he'd lose them by the end of the day. But then he would, he would party pretty hard and he'd get on the mic and rap. And yeah, it was day and night with Sean for sure. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. So, J.D. Stimson asks, what's the best feeling you experienced on the top of the mountain? Hmm. Um, um, Yeah, that's a good question. Let's see here. I mean, on the top of the mountain, hmm, well, (laughs) <laughs> you like stories, okay? This is this was not at the King of the Hill, but it was on the top of the mountain. He's he didn't specifically say King of the Hill, but <laughs> when the first time, I think this was the first descent too. Anybody ever snowboarded uh Mount Spur across the inlet here from Anchorage? I I flew up with Chet and uh we landed on top of Mount Spur, like 10,500 feet. And I got out, was getting out of the chopper. And as soon as I stepped off the ski, I fell into a crevasse, but I hung on to the ski of the helicopter. No way. Yeah. And I'm looking back up at Chet and he's sitting there and he's, he's motioning like, do you want to get back in the helicopter? And I shook my head. No. And I climbed out of the hill, uh, the crevasse, and I was in front of the helicopter, and I had to jump over this crevasse again to get to the other side and get my snowboard off of the other side of the helicopter because it was on like a ski rack over there. Mm-hmm. And then I got my uh, board off, and I gave him a thumbs up, and he took off. And uh, well, the best feeling was I didn't fall in that crevasse, and I took a couple runs off all three sides of Mount Spur waiting for him to come back with the rest of the crew. Not falling in a crevasse. <laughs> That's your most memorable feeling on the top of a mountain is not dying. Uh, not dying. And, and, and yeah, th- that's probably one of my most memorable mountaintops. Also right after that, uh, I was up there alone for probably over 20 minutes to a half hour. And I kind of was freaking out a little bit. And I had Mm -hmm. to, and I, so in order to keep my mind kind of calm and chill out, 
I snowboarded off all three sides of Mount Spur and hiked back up just for something to do because if I just sat there, I was going to freak out and uh, waiting for the next lift to come in so I wasn't alone on top of Mount Spur. And, you know, if, if the helicopter would have crashed, I would be like, I don't even know if anybody would have known I was up there. Yeah. Yeah. Mountaintops. Okay, so Mike Estes asks, have you seen Matt Goodwill at all recently? Where is that guy these days? You know, he randomly texted me over the over the uh, summer, and uh, I think he's still in Oregon or Washington and riding dirt bikes. He sent me, texted me a picture of uh, a dirt bike and stuff. So other than that, no, I haven't... Uh, I haven't heard from him. Maybe you can connect me with him so I can talk to him for this podcast. Oh, yeah. I think, yeah, I think I got his number now. Yeah. Yeah, I could. Awesome. Yeah. Okay. So Chris Yelverton asks, how did the five-gallon sub box hit? Oh, the sub bucket he's talking about. That's, uh, that's, um... Uh, so say you got a 12 inch subwoofer, but you don't have a box to put it in. You get a Homer's bucket from home Depot and you kind of cut the bottom out and squish it together. Maybe put a little fleece in there. Mm -hmm. And then you, you screw your subwoofer to the bucket. That's a sub bucket. (laughs) It hits hard. It's a hard hitting sub bucket Homer. And would you use that at King of the Hill? No, that was that was slightly after that. He seen that. He was he was impressed. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, so I have one more question for you, Jay. All right. What do you think it was about that time around King of the Hill, that era, that made it so special? Mm, well, I think um the snowboarding uh was kind of in its infancy or just beginning. And then also it was, there was no guides. You could go and do whatever you want. Like we, we saying we want to go snowboard off hogs back, no guides, whatever, eight guys or six guys. And you just go and do whatever you wanted to do. And, uh, you know, it's a little lawless, little wild west. And, uh, I mean, those are the best times. You know, nobody wants to be told what to do. You just want to do whatever you want to do. Mm-hmm. So just um, kind of being free, you know, low low hassle factor, you know. When something's such a hassle to do, it just takes all the fun out of it. I don't want to, don't want to be told where I can ride or you can't turn. Don't turn on the other side of my turn. Don't tell me where I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn wherever I want to turn. <laughs> if that makes any sense. In this next conversation, I talk with Richie Fowler. Richie gives a candid recollection of King of the Hill, how snowboarding, alcohol, drugs, and sex all coincided to create a moment that would elevate and help define snowboarding as a sport, and what it meant at that time to be a snowboarder. Yeah, my name is uh, Richie Fowler. My association with the King of the Hill was I was a pretty young kid back then. Um, just got into snowboarding probably five, six years previous to that. Um, 
was really getting on the extreme side of things and was looking to go to the next level um, where I could, instead of hiking every day, you know, get in that heli. So me and a cat named Juan Gomez, who owned GBN Skate in Anchorage, actually reached out to Jay Liska and he told me that a guy named Mike Kozad down in Valdez um, at, a, at the Santa Lodge actually had some helicopter access. I mean, you know, it's pretty big money, but if you got the money, um, then that's where the action's at right now. And so we headed that direction. So before that, you guys were what? Just just snowboarding? I mean, I want to say resorts, but it wasn't resorts. Like so, so going up to Thompson Pass, that was like the new thing. Yeah. So, um, I mean, obviously in Alaska, I think you're aware of it. A lot of other people might not be aware of it. Um, Hatcher's Pass was a was a kind of a destination for people that wanted to get a little bit more extreme other than the resort riding that we had in Alaska. Um, and so once you've kind of mastered that and explored all of those mountains, then the next step is really only looking for a chopper. So I have one question before we get into this and start talking about King of the Hill. And that is, what is a jack flip? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> uh, that's pretty funny. Um, so, I mean, it's just a flip masturbating at the same time, I hate to say. <laughs> and how did you come up with that? Uh, probably too many drugs. <laughs> Couple of head plants. <laughs> so I was talking to Jason Borgstead about this podcast the other day, and he said that he just wants someone to tell the truth about how raw it was, meaning how raw King of the Hill was. Yeah. <laughs> so how raw was it? Um, it's as raw as you could ever even imagine. Um, there was no rules, no limits, lots of drugs. Um, it's a really a time looking back that the only other people that were doing what we were doing at the time around the first King of the Hill, even a little bit prior to that, was rock stars is was what I would say. So no rules and lots of drugs. Yeah, and alcohol. What kind of drugs? <laughs> um, every, anywhere from, you know, your basic, you know, joint, bong, um, all the way up to heroin, I mean, and everything in between. Um, methamphetamine wasn't really back in the day back then. We never did any of that, but we did a lot of cocaine. Mm -hmm. So how would you explain King of the Hill to someone who's never even heard of it? Well, I lost you for a big time there. My Siri got, got in the middle of all that. There he goes again. Sorry about that, Cody. That's I'm okay. Having I'm having technical difficulties over here. And I started talking about drugs. <laughs> <laughs> No worries, it'll happen, right? <laughs> right. So how would you explain King of the Hill to someone who's never heard of it? Um, I would explain it as, you know, a bunch of guys that really got together that were trying to turn a sport that was really catching fire and to go from one extreme side of it to, to the farthest possibility side that it could go overnight. 
So that's kind of the explanation of it. And from your point of view, where was snowboarding at that point? Well, boards had just started getting good. I mean, um, back then, really the only boots you wore were Burton. Um, I think that was around the, everybody. Nobody wore anything else. Um, so um, other than that, I mean, it was really fresh. You know, it was, you know, early 90s, mm-hmm. late 80s, I think. I don't know. It's been so long. It's the drugs. <laughs> right. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> so what did a typical day at King of the Hill look like? Well, for most of the guys, excluding Sean Palmer, um, it was wake up probably around, I'd say, probably 10 or 11 and um, get to the helipad just... I mean, rock as many runs as you could. I mean, during the contest, I mean, things were a little bit different because there's a lot of, you know, more organization, I guess you would say, around what your day was going to entitle. But um, pre that and after the actual contest, I mean, you're talking king of the hill. Um, I mean, it was pretty much just get to the mountain and, and ride till you die type of deal. If you had the money, you know. Um, as many runs as you could do. I think I did 26 runs in one day. No way. Yeah, I think I think I pretty much have the record. I'm not sure, but not to be boastful or anything, but yeah, my, my other job was uh, not very legal. <laughs> and what was that? <laughs> I grew a lot of weed back then. And did you sell it? Yeah, yeah. So were you kind of like the... Uh the go-to guy for weed pretty much yeah i mean when all the guys came you know up from the lower 48 i was definitely the guy that you know had everything ready for everyone that wanted a party and so what did that look like did you just kind of carry it around in a backpack or just keep it in the hotel room or what i think i carried it around in a backpack pretty much and then so anytime anybody won wanted some you'd just be like all right like 15 bucks 20 bucks yeah, 50 bucks, 100 bucks, depending on what they were buying. I think I had a little bit of everything. <laughs> How much did you usually bring to King of the Hill? Um, I would bring, you know, probably a pound of weed and, you know, probably an ounce of blow and pretty much about it. So I feel like I want, you know what? I'm just going to ask you, what, what did some of those nights look like? Some of those more memorable nights? You know, with with the weed, with the blow, with the alcohol? Well, I can tell you there was, I mean, I remember specifically a couple of nights where gunshots were going through hotel room walls. And, um, I mean, it got pretty ugly, pretty scary. You had a bunch of really intoxicated people that were having way too good of a time. And like I said, there just wasn't any rules or, you know, it was a pretty scary time, actually, looking back. Gunshots going through walls. What what was going on there? Well, everybody liked to bring their guns up there, I think, in the in the early years. Um, we'd all bring from our, you know, our AK-47 to, I mean, I had a Mac 11, AK-47, you know, sawed-off shotgun, pump. And we would just go out and we'd just shoot the big glaciers, I don't know, driving through to... Thompson's Pass from Valdez, 
and I'm sure you've been there, you've seen the big ice hanging glaciers. Mm -hmm. We would just stop in there and just rifle out rounds, you know, round after round for target practice where these people were ice climbing all the time. <laughs> it was pretty wild times. You would just shoot the shit out of these glaciers. Yeah, yeah. We would just unload in them, bring all the ammunition you could. And, it was, and when it was like a little too cloudy to, to ride, we would just shoot guns and party. Oh, man, that's pretty wild. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty crazy times. <laughs> so earlier you said excluding Sean Palmer. What did you mean by that? Oh, that guy was up at six in the morning, like running five miles. But I mean, to his credit, he would hang out with us probably till about two in the morning, just getting wasted at the bar. But the guy was up. He was just, that guy's a master. But you guys would sleep in. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was real bad. I mean, we all were just trying to get chicks, you know. It's like, I mean, it was getting drunk, and whoever ended up with the chick at the end of the night was the coolest guy on the block. <laughs> <laughs> so it was definitely a uh, a boys' club. De yeah, definitely a boys' club for sure. Do you remember what your first day looked like? My first day in Valdez, or my first day at the contest first day at king of the hill like so you show up to valdez and it's part of the event so when i showed up i mean i had showed up i think a few weeks early and i had just been riding and riding and my first day walked i was sitting at the bar at the saint lodge and in comes nick parada sean palmer and um and we just got straight to drinking those two were some crazy they were, they were my speed, that's all I can say. Your speed. Can you explain that a little more? <laughs> <laughs> Pedal to the metal. <laughs> Just up up in the afternoon, drinking first thing. Is that what you're getting at? Yep. Yeah. I mean, I won't speak for them, but yeah, it was, you know, it was whiskey in the morning and a little bit of cocaine to wake you up so you could kind of function straight and walk straight and uh other than that, man, it was, you know, let's look for a chopper to get in. You know, every time that I hear stories about King of the Hill, I always think of how far away we've come from that, you know, for better or for worse, right? So if you went to a free ride festival nowadays, it would look nothing like that. Yeah, absolutely. We, um, I mean, never even heard of a harness or a helmet, or you know, a peeps, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, so, I mean, we did, you know, end up, you know, it did transgress into that over time, you know, as people got lost in avalanches, you know, people, you know, you know, broke their back, jumping off a cliff, they needed to be located, and, you know, so, I mean, I think it kind of transgressed into that, but yeah, in the early years, I mean, it was nothing, um, there was a few guys that, you know, I think we're from like Tom Burt and um, a couple other guys I can't really remember that are more on the, you know, back when um, hard plates were kind of the thing when we were all, you know, doing, you know, just binding some boots. They're riding hard plates. Those guys kind of brought the peeps and uh, the more knowledge into to that side. We were just more gung ho looking for, a, you know, a cliff to jump off, something to spin off, something to flip off, you know, just mm -hmm. really just just kind of going crazy you know 
as I'm as I'm kind of sitting here thinking about this, it seems like there was kind of two types of people that went out there. The the group that was super into partying super hard and then snowboarding and then there was the people like Sean Palmer um and Tom Burt, right? Yeah, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. And so those dudes uh or that group of people were super into partying, but they also kind of had limits possibly, and then would wake up and do go jogging and, you know, get ready for the day of riding. Yeah. Whereas that other group just continued to party. No, you're absolutely right. Um, I mean, there wasn't a time when, you know, I could say the, the absolute, the, the, sorry, the Siri thing keeps interrupting my thing um the core group of guys when we actually did kind of form a core um meaning um some of the harder core guys are just a little bit more reckless yeah they didn't really exercise i mean it was you know the bong (laughs) picking up the bong in the morning was about the most exercise they did Mm -hmm. but then on the other hand you're totally correct you had people that you know, weren't really into our scene that were very serious about the sport. I mean, not saying that they were more serious about it than we were. Um, They were just a lot more, I'd say, mature and just didn't, weren't reckless like we were. Looking back on it, you think that you were pretty immature. (laughs) Oh, definitely, definitely. (laughs) You know, something I want to get back to is uh, those gunshots going through walls. Do you remember what that situation was like i do and um i want to think it was peter clark actually that ended up shooting some holes through the wall um it was with my gun and we were just it was a night of a lot of cocaine and whiskey and um and just happiness it wasn't nothing out of anger it was more pick up the gun and, you know, shoot in the air type of deal. Mm-hmm. Kind of like cowboys. Yeah, most, you know, definitely like cowboys. Was there kind of a moment when you were like, oh, shit, like, I think we're getting a little too crazy? Never. Never? The only time is when um, I think it was in the, the final King of the Hill that I did. And, um, I came down there with a pound of mushrooms and we're at the, the other bar. I can't remember what it was called now. It's been so long, but we were all partying there. It was the night that Matt Goodwill was getting the trophy and I brought in a pound of mushrooms and I just started handing them out to everybody in the bar and I accidentally hand some to the police and I went to jail that night. You handed some mushrooms to a police officer. Yes, and that was the last, that was the end of my Valdez days. <laughs> that was the last time you went to Valdez? That was the last time I went to the King of the Hill. Okay, and what was his reaction when you handed him some mushrooms? Um, it wasn't good. I, I mean, <laughs> I was so intoxicated, I don't really remember much, but um, everybody tried to help me. And uh, it's so funny because everybody tried to help me. They didn't have barely any evidence, but like I had a pound of mushrooms and 
the whole bar took all them mushrooms and confiscated, you know, amongst the people. But the cops still had like a couple of little stems. So it was like two grams he got or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's how they got you in trouble with those two grams. Two grams, yeah. That's a lot better than a pound. Yes, much better. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I feel like I keep searching for more stories. God, there's so many stories. I've come into this project kind of kind of blind, but not super blind. You know, I've I knew that I wanted to do something about King of the Hill to to help preserve it, right? And I I think that maybe I unconsciously was like, you know what? I'm gonna learn from everybody that was a part of it. And I mean, everything that I know about King of the Hill is like little kind of titterings here and here and there, like little kind of murmurs about, oh, it was so crazy. But I kind of want, I mean, at least one story from you to kind of like bring it to life for me. Let me think about that. There is so many stories. I just, you know, without sitting down and like going through this file system in my brain that's been so fried out through over the years. Thank God I'm clean nowadays, everybody. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And um, there's some really wild stories I can say about, but some of them are so X-rated, Cody. I mean, I can't really speak about them. They're too X-rated. Way too X-rated. In what way? Like, uh, kind of a in trouble with the law x-rated or sexually x-rated more sexually x-rated i think with you know um a few of the guys you know just i mean i can tell you a quick story real quick that's probably not that bad um i was running i was getting my room one time at this hotel and the young girl came in she was the maid well ended up you know you know the story from there. She was cleaning my room and she didn't leave for a while. <laughs> oh my god. That sounds like a teenage like comedy. It really was. You know, like a like a situation that would happen in a teenager's dream or something like that. Teenage boy's dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is ridiculous. So so that it was just did she know that you were there as part of King of the Hill or what? Yeah, she did. It was actually um that was the first King of the Hill. Yes, she did know. And I had been in Valdez probably 5 years before the King of the Hill started, I think. About 5 years, 4 or 5 years. So most of the people around Valdez had known known of me. You know, I had the the crazy car just like your your dad did. This is the Cadillac, right? He had the Cadillac. I had the Bonneville with hydraulics and switches. And I had that big Bronco that was lifted up like eight or 12 inches, you know, with, you know, huge Mickey Thompson. So, I mean, I was loud wherever I went with my music, my hair, you know, just, you know, my attitude. Um, Everybody knew we were snowboarders. It was like the most kind of back then. um, It was a very interesting time for snowboarders because they looked at us like we were really rebellious and we were the outlaws and we really lived up to that image. Mm-hmm. So now that you are, how old are you now? I'm 50. So now that you're 50, looking back on that stuff, it seems like you don't have any problem talking about it, but how do you feel about it? Mm, I feel, I feel, you know, 
it's, like I said, it's kind of embarrassing some of the things that we have done in our lives and um, a lot of the drugs and stuff. I wish I would have took a little bit different a route, you know, um, but, you know, there's no shame in the game. You just, you know, you, you do what you do and you, you keep it pushing, you know. Mm-hmm. So I've done a few like preliminary interviews to kind of help me understand King of the Hill and its key players. And more than a few of them described you as confrontational. Why do you think they would say that? Because mm, I used to fight a lot. <laughs> I was the little the little fighting guy. The scrapper. The scrapper, yeah. Why would you fight? Um, probably, um, I don't know if it was uh, just kind of grew up in that, you know, it was... I have four older brothers, four older sisters. I'm the youngest out of nine. Got my butt whooped a lot. So I always felt like I had a lot to prove to everybody and in everything I did. And that's kind of my life story. Well, what does your background look like? You know, I, I don't really know too much about it. Um, I mean, background is um, I was born in Arizona. That's where I reside now. I'm back in Arizona and um, moved to Alaska. Uh, you know, parents were... You know, you know, kind of a broken up family. I got a lot of siblings. Uh, dropped out of school in seventh grade and really turned to selling drugs for my money. Always been a businessman. I've always had lots of money um, to um, just kind of head my life through that. You know, I did get lucky and found a snowboard and which I think probably kept me out of prison. Um, if I hadn't found a snowboard, I probably would be in prison today. And, um, and so, I mean, I have a pretty shady background, you know, and not real proud of it, but, um, I have, you know, I do have Jesus in my life and I am a Christian. And so there is some, uh, definitely, I feel like I've been forgiven for a lot of things that I've done, you know, and a lot of the ways that I've acted. So I've changed a lot of the ways I think, I think nowadays. Do you still snowboard? I do not. You don't. When was the last time you went snowboarding? in 1995 i think oh man yeah long time ago yep long time ago when's the last time you did any drugs oh probably about 10 years ago okay and what was it uh heroin okay and when we were talking earlier you said that there was a lot of drugs at king of the hill and heroin was one of them was that the first time that you tried heroin? No, first time I ever tried heroin, I was actually in Seattle snowboarding and um, doing a Baker run. And I was with some friends. I won't mention their names. They're all, all part of King of the Hill, though. <laughs> you might talk to some of them. And <laughs> um, that's in Seattle was the first time I ever tried heroin. Okay. And what was that like? <sighs> I mean, it's, you know, it's a, definitely a rush, you know, I mean, it's uh if you want to feel good and ruin your life, it's definitely the way to go. <laughs> Feeling good and ruining your life at the same time. <laughs> you said that that snowboarding kind of kept you out of jail, you feel like otherwise you you'd be in jail. But do you feel like it also kind of saved your life? Do you think that you would have been doing maybe more drugs if you wouldn't have found snowboarding? Absolutely. I totally think that. Mm -hmm. In what way? I mean, what do, you, what do you think that other path looked like? Oh, that other path was, I mean, 
the people that I hung around with, I mean, probably, you know, 50 to 75% of them are dead right now. Probably at least 80 or 90% are either in prison or dead, you know, so um, real shady crowd. And, and, you know, and it's just pretty funny because you don't think of Anchorage, Alaska as being that gangster, that ghetto, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you live there, you know that that place has, I mean, like any other city, it's got it. It's got its bad, it's got its good. For sure, it definitely has a dark underbelly. It sure does, it definitely does. When I originally hit you up about talking about King of the Hill, what was the first thing that went through your mind? Um, just having fun free riding, you know, just getting dropped off and, you know, just riding, you know, I didn't really think about the contest aspect of it. You know, when I think of when you, when you talk about King of the Hill, I just think about Valdez, mm-hmm. you know, and I understand that you're thinking King of the Hill, but I'm thinking Valdez in general, because really the King of the Hill of the contest, I mean, it was so free ride. It was just like going up, getting in a chopper and saying, hey, Richie, it's your turn to ride. It's your turn to go. You know what I mean? We had these few little parameters that we had to go through. But other than that, it was just, you know, it was just getting some free chopper rides is what it was really all about. So it was just like a continuation of your season. That's all it was. I mean, and it was hanging out with a lot of guys and, you know, that were just they really had the same, you know, uh, how do you say it? Not ambitions, but, you know, they were just on the same path that you were when it came to snowboarding, and everybody just wanted to have fun, and it really wasn't about, you know, getting famous. It wasn't about any of that. It was more about, I mean, I was the one guy where the cameraman would set up, and I would still do a run-run wonder. <laughs> you know, everybody else would hike the hit, you know, to get a good shot, and I yeah. would just blow by them, and <laughs> I'd just go do another run. So, you know, I kind of got, you know, chastised or blackballed for doing that a lot to the photographers and whatnot. How much was your day-to-day life similar or different than, you know, your time at King of the Hill? Back then, my day-to-day life was, and it was so similar to the King of the Hill because basically from, I would say, snowboarding was my life back then i mean that's all i woke up i fell asleep that's all i did from you know and if i wasn't in if i wasn't in you know somewhere i could snowboard in america then i'd be in south america snowboarding wherever there was snow we would find it um if it was the middle of summer we would hike and you know even if we did a little patch of snow somewhere so my day-to-day life um back then was the same as the king of the hill is like trying to find the next cliff to jump off the next mound to you know throw a flip off um find the next guys to ride with and you know the it was just pretty much the same day to day i have one more question actually um but i'd like to ask you if you have anything else you'd like to add um no i'd just say you know for a lot of the people that um didn't get to experience it, you know, you missed out on a lot because back then, now, riding without a helmet, without a peeps and being really reckless, but was being so free. It was like the freedom 
of being free in America back then. You just got, you paid your money, you got on a chopper, you did a first descent. Nobody ever rode that mountain before. You were dodging glaciers. I mean, it was just an experience that I don't think, without doing it, that um, unless you go to some other foreign country now, you'll never get to experience. So we were very blessed and very lucky to be alive at the same time. Well, right on, Richie. Thank you so much for doing this. And thanks, man. Who do you think I should talk to next? Um, if I was going to say, I mean, well, Farmer is probably, probably he's got a lot of stories in Andy Brewer. I mean, there's so many. Um, Jason Beaton was always around from the early days. Um, Steve Graham was there in the early days. Juan Gomez, um, nobody knows a lot about him, but he was one of the first people to ever snowboard in Valdez along with me. And um, so I don't know if you could ever find him, but he's somewhere up there in Anchorage. Um, there's a lot of people. And um, Nick Prada is, you know, obviously he's going to be the one that um, I think with a lot of it being all of our ideas because we were in a tight group. He was the one that took the ball and ran with it and actually formed the contest. Um, but I think it was a, you know, a group of guys that really came up with the concept and then he took the ball and ran with it and made it happen. You can support local grassroots journalism at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats.